0: everybody, welcome to ASCP's Inside the Laboratory. My name is Kelly Swales and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and I'm the executive editor of journals at ASCP.
1: Hi, and my name is David Ritter. I'm uh, your other co-host and I work in e-learning at ASCP, but I also hold a master's degree in medical anthropology from the University of Hawaii at Manoa.
2: And I'm Dr. Fred Rodriguez. I'm the Moss professor of pathology at the LSU School of Medicine in New Orleans. I've been involved with the ACP for, uh, since the last millennium, and I have served on the board, served as president from 2005, 2006, and I've also served on the Board of Governors of the Board of Registry and for about a nine years since there, too. So I've had the distinct fortune of, of seeing the uh, ASCP from multiple sides of its activities.
0: So I'm really super excited today. We're going to be talking about the history of the ASCP organization, but before we get to the discussion, I need to do a little bit of housekeeping. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. So, uh, David, do you want to get us going?
1: Sure. Thanks, Kelly. So, with 2022 being the centennial celebration of ASCP, I'd like to start by building context on the state of pathology at the time ASCP was first founded. So some of our more history-minded listeners may remember a piece that Fred Rodriguez, our guest for today, published in Lab Medicine back in 2007 called The American Society for Clinical Pathology, A Century of Firsts, in which he writes, in the early 1920s, clinical pathology was an infant science barely recognized by physicians. So Fred, I'm wondering, what did that actually look like? Uh, Who was conducting pathology and what did it mean for patients?
2: Well, back at that time, pathologists were just thought of as, as anatomic pathologists doing autopsies and studying the disease, which is what pathology means at that point in time. So much of lab work was actually done by by clinicians, folks who were taking care of patients as too. So it was practiced. Clinical pathology was generally practiced by internists as an adjunct to their patient practices. These practitioners strongly believed in the potential of medical laboratory testing to enhance diagnosis. And these clinicians began to, to form an association with each other, you know, networking, some contact that, that way across various states. It's important, I think, to note that the, the meaning of the original term clinical pathology has evolved from its origins. It was applied, as I said, to clinicians who practice laboratory medicine, but it's now clinical pathologies recognize a distinct subspecialty of pathology uh, to that branch to separate it from anatomic sources of testing this way. Those practitioners, those only practitioners, tried to carve out a niche within the American Medical Association, but the AMA was, they were not too pleased with recognition and lack of support from the AMA. So these quote-unquote clinical pathologists started taking care of their patients, believed that the only way to gain acknowledgement was to develop their own national organization. So in May 1922, a group of 39 physicians who had leanings in this, this area of science met to develop what they would name as the American Society of Clinical Pathologists. And their goal was to achieve greater scientific proficiency in clinical pathology and to maintain the status of clinical pathologists on an equal plane with other specialists. So they did develop a constitution and bylaws. And about at that time in 1922, more than hundred physicians came by for the second meeting, which was held on May 23rd of 1922, And eventually 145 charter members joined the, originally joined the society. The ASCP itself was incorporated in the state of Illinois in 1922 as a not-for-profit medical society organized exclusively for educational, scientific, and charitable purposes. The focus to serve the public established ASCP as a 501c3 tax status organization. And what that means is ASCP is not a lobbying organization that we can engage in certain limited legislative activities, but we, we cannot get involved in over political activities or have uh, political action committees or make major donations. So the society set from the very beginning its prime objectives uh, in its constitution, which have not changed substantially in the past hundred years to include one, to promote the practice of scientific medicine through a wider application of clinical laboratory methods to diagnose disease. Two, to stimulate original research in all branches of clinical laboratory work. Three, to establish from time to time uniform standards for performance of various laboratory examinations, meaning laboratory testing of clinical specimens. Four, to elevate the scientific and professional status of those specializing in this branch of medicine. And fifth, to encourage a closer cooperation between clinical practitioners and clinical pathologists. So the ASCP was actually the first professional medical organization to articulate these particular objectives.
0: Kind of a follow-up question for you, Fred. I don't know if you've ever read the book called The Great Influenza. It's about, uh, and I'm blanking on the the, uh, historian's name who wrote it, but it's essentially history of the 1918 flu pandemic and the big chunk of the beginning of that book is basically like here's like the history of the um, pathology and early diagnostics because the the history book really discusses how in its infancy like medical science was in general in the early 1900s in the united states and i just really found it fascinating that you know sort of diagnostics is coming this burgeoning field and then in 1922 Like you were saying, the clinical pathologist decided, like, "Hey, we need our own organization. Like, this is an actual thing that we need to make happen."
2: And the author of that book is John Berry. Thank you, John Berry. And he's actually a Louisianian. Oh, look at that! And yeah, it's an excellent book. When COVID broke out, yes, I'm I'm very familiar with the book and recommend it to everybody. I do too. yeah. because as you said, the first third of this book is actually a review of the origins of virology, and of course, in 1918 viruses didn't even know that they, you know, nobody knew virus, what viruses were, what viruses existed kind of thing. And so the original sort of uh, attempts to deal with that, with the epidemic was they actually did have vaccines, but they were vaccines derived from bacterial extracts and whatnot. So obviously they didn't have any significant clinical effect whatsoever. So it really, it took a while, you know, past, you know, the, the 1918 epidemic, which actually lasted into 1922. It was about three years before the Spanish influenza of Spain had nothing to do with it when it began to defervest. And COVID right now is sort of following that sort of path, even though there's variants that are emerging. And of course, we do have vaccines now. We do have genome sequencing. We've got all the kinds of technologies that did not exist back then, which I think has, has had a very positive effect in, in mitigating much of what COVID's problems have been.
0: I was going to say, I don't think it can be overstated how how important diagnostics was to the whole, especially at the very beginning, right?
2: Well, absolutely. Back in 19, over 50 million people died worldwide of influenza, 5 million in the US. But the book is very interesting because it it relates how there was a a disjointed, lack of coordinated kind of response to influenza in the US, much like there's been a discoordinated sort of effect. And so I I highly recommend the book. for anybody wants to Delve into that and actually draw some parallels between what influenza was like in 1918 and what COVID has been like in, in 2020. But it's, you know, but, but it's, as, as you just said, it's because of the additional science, additional understanding, the additional testing capabilities that probably developing a vaccine was, was on a more than rapid, I mean, it was almost, you know, light speed kind of effect of, of being able to develop effective therapies to try and contain COVID. And that's what vaccinations do. I mean, all of immunology is tremendously, very little was understood about the immune system back in 1922 in the early turn of the century as well.
1: Yeah. And uh, to your point about the uh, lack of a a coordinated response, it it seems like, you know, in the absence of having a national organization, there also wasn't really widespread agreement about, you know, the the standardization of things that we would take for granted today, like having an educational core that everyone who participates in diagnostic medicine would go through or having very well-agreed-upon methods for an emerging field, like that being clinical pathology. W- would you say that's the case?
2: Absolutely. And that, that, that again, is the, the next role with the ASCP having its you know, primary focus on science, educational, scientific, uh, as well as the public good and public health purposes. Those folks back, the early founders of the society, recognized that the only way you achieve quality is through standardization. As long as everybody's doing their own kind of thing in a different kind of way, quality is all over the place in a sense that actually is a lack of quality. So to develop standards, ASCP, you know, was was really, really at the cutting edge leading forefront of this. Henry Ford, you know, certainly developed, you know, the assembly line thing to turn out automobiles, but the, the aspects of quality and checking on quality through standardization of the development of the pieces and parts really came out of laboratory medicine, I dare say about this as well. So the practice pathology before the ASC was, was, again, it's individual practitioners trying to do their own thing, different techniques, different methodologies, different chemicals to try and find particular analytes that way. And it, there really was lacking of that standardization or consistency. So where the contribution ASCP has made is actually to, to set those kinds of standards all the way across the board that way, and we're still doing that to this extent so, so to sort of highlight. I mean, that that gets us to the point too with the ASCP being final twenty-two, and, and one of the primary concerns of those clinicians is how can we get consistent, reliable, accurate, precise results that are meaningful in using that data in order to take care of patients. And first off, is the science having consistent sort of technologies going going back to spectroscopy and and other you know colorimetric methods that were dealt with as well. But the people doing the test also had some standardization, as you mentioned, in their education in the background. So that's where the ASAP, recognizing that need, came up with founding the border registry, as it was called back then, and offering those first certifications, which, and what a certification is, is setting a set of educational standards that an individual must show competency in and a knowledge base of in order to be awarded a piece of paper, a certificate, saying that they, they have knowledge and capability uh, in this particular area. So the quality of patient care then depends not only on the pathologist and the physician and the clinician oriented towards laboratory medicine, but also in the training qualifications of persons who are directly involved in performing the tests. And the ASCP was the first professional medical organization to set standards for laboratory professionals. Those standards and procedures, you know, continued and continue to evolve as the science continues to evolve to this day. And it was in 1933 that they assessed the competence of laboratory personnel, individuals who could meet those academic clinical standards were achieve performance and be awarded a certificate. So the border registry, what that, as the word says, was actually a registry, a listing of individuals who had been certified by the standards that the ACP set, and folks could contact the ACP to, to validate and verify that someone actually had been certified as far as hiring and establishing those practices out in the real world. That board of cert- registry certification has become the benchmark worldwide for excellence in laboratory testing. And it's the standards that employers of laboratory professionals actually use to this day to assure that they've got competent employees coming on in into work.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I graduated MedTech school from St. Louis University, I graduated out of that program in 1997, and it was back then there were a few different accreditations that you could have gotten, but everyone was like, yeah, no, you can do, do one of the others if you want, but definitely get the ASCP one as well. It's always been, like you said, the benchmark.
2: To transition relatively recently, within the last 10, 12 years or whatever, from the Board of Registry to the Board of Certification. Represents the amalgamation of some of those other certification agencies who and the, the board of governors for the board of certification expanded to embrace and bring into the fold those other individuals so that there, there really aren't the, the, these separate different kinds of examinations that students in laboratory medicine need to take and whatnot. That again, truly, the board of certification certificate represents the gold standard. That's recognized. And the globalization of the Board of Certification, again, is a reflection of the fact that what was developed here by the ASCP in the United States, the ASCP and Board of Certification in its globalization efforts have reached on out to establish those kinds of standards and laboratory testing worldwide. And I I forget how many countries now actually, individuals in those countries seek certification from the ASCP's board. But those those standards now proliferating worldwide, both in in testing and the training and the knowledge that those people have to provide that consistent, reliable, accurate, precise testing results that are needed for appropriate quality patient care.
0: How familiar are you with ASCP efforts to kind of standardize medical laboratory science programs in terms of you have to have X number of biology, you have to have X number of clinical
2: hours? Can you speak to that a bit? Back into in, in 1931, ASCB published the first compilation of standardized laboratory techniques. So that was a book that actually, you know, if you're going to test for glucose, you're going to test for someone else's way. this is the way to do it in order to encourage folks to use standard chemical practices and methodologies in order to get results, so that results could be comparable across with each other. So that followed then in 1936, where the Board of Registry published the first curriculum for schools of medical technology, and was the first organization to designate its restaurants as medical technologists—that's the aegis of that terminology, of course now called clinical laboratory scientists. This curriculum that the Board of Registry developed was the first document to set educational content standards for the training of medical technologists, and of course those have, as as the scope of practice has changed for clinical laboratory sciences, there's been some modification, continuous updating of those standards to assure that the the highest levels of education are there in order for an individual to be awarded certification by by the BOC. The specifics about curriculum requirements certainly has to be contributed to, but uh, it was not until 1953 that the ASCP contributed to organizing National Accreditation Council for Clinical Laboratory Scientists, which is now the accrediting body for medical technology, clinical laboratory science programs. And so NACLS, which I also served on their board for a while, is actually the entity that goes out and inspects medtech schools, clinical laboratory science schools, to see that they are following the standards. And the standards that NACLS use are actually the evolution that have proceeded from those first initial standards that the ASCP developed. So, ASCP decided to get out of the curriculum school accreditation business and focus on certifying the products of those education to make sure that they meet the standards that the board of certification requires.
1: Yeah, that leads me to uh, my next question. So, you know, in the in the 20s, you might be able to summarize what ASCP was doing as, you know, sort of standardizing and formalizing a profession that up until then it didn't exist and uh, wasn't regarded in any kind of formal way. Outside of its own practitioners, but you know, after World War II ends, you know, at, at a kind of a structural level, ASCP sees a ton of growth. The number of practitioners in the country also explodes. And I'm I'm curious, how did ASCP's ambitions or the projects that it was involved in uh, transform following World War II, or, or did they?
2: Well, I think the core elements of the society that that I alluded to earlier was five basic points have never changed, have never wavered whatsoever the fundamental aspects of those values to look upon. That sort of point of view is there. Now, the, the the implementation of those values certainly has been modified because of technology and scientific advances that have occurred this way. Explosion after World War II, again, is a reflection of the, the tremendous expansion of medical knowledge that has followed from that event That in time. So... So much more in an analytics, so much more an understanding of genetics, which, you know, and Watson and Crick and DNA and all that sort of stuff and fundamental understandings of, of human physiologic processes, particularly those involving the immune system, which involve the body's defenses and responses to disease this way, sort of drove this on forward. And so with the ASCP has continued in its mission of providing educational and scientific guidance to those practitioners. So, it's publications, it's meetings, the educational activities that the on are all geared to here and now, timely kinds of things that represent what the standard of practice should be. Once data is accumulated, that this, this is the recognized fundamental standard way of, of approaching this is to inform the profession that if you're still doing it the old way, you need to transition and move it to the new, more modern, more contemporary more widely accepted methodologies that are here as well. So that's really what sort of happened to the to society after World War II. With increasing political regulations and such that happened and expansion of government, the ASCP faced something of a decision, you know, whether or not to continue to focus on those founding principles as a nonprofit 501c3 organization or to branch out in, a, in, in other circumstances to try and play a role in the development of regulatory issues. And ASCP chose not to do that. It remained faithful to its, its founding fathers and its founding principles, which continue to, to this day. So I think that there is a continuity there across the timeline that still speaks to the fact that, that ASCP is not lost. I mean, if you read our current mission statement, which is The mission of the American Society for Clinical Pathology—note to change a name—we're no longer the American Society of Clinical Pathologists. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is to provide excellence in education, certification, and advocacy on behalf of patients, pathologists, and laboratory professionals. So that's still where the focus of of this society is. I do want to correct one thing. I think I mentioned that Knackles was formed in 1953. It was actually 1973 when NACLS was established and took over the accreditation role for schools of medical technology.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that there's really something remarkable that you point out about ASCP, which is it's, you know, the sort of continuity that it's had in terms of its aims as an organization and its objectives, and how consistently those things have been pursued over the last century. Like when I think of uh, ASCP's more recent efforts, particularly in terms of international outreach, um, a lot of the services that ACP was providing in the 20s seem similar to the things that it's doing now, but just around the globe. Do you feel like this is the case? Like the, when I think of, you know, the, the kinds of outreach that particularly the Center for Global Health has done in sub-Saharan Africa or East Asia? It feels like the core directives to provide excellence in education, certification, advocacy on behalf of patients, pathologists, laboratory professionals, it's not so much that those things have changed, it's just that the scale of it keeps on moving outwards and outwards and the sort of ripples of ASCP's efforts get larger and larger.
2: Absolutely. I think uh, receipt of the, the PEPFAR grant, the president's, Relief for, uh, you know, president's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, and the ACP of, of all the laboratory sort of organizations was chosen to receive this grant, and we dispatched volunteers to go to sub-Saharan Africa, and the, their purpose was completely educational. They went to train people in the standard techniques and methodologies of detecting HIV, so that you could do case studies, you could do epidemiologic studies, you could you can do follow-ups of those individuals that, to identify uh, them and then provide again. So doing the case just Identifying the incidence and prevalence of that disease as well, and then again, as treatments for HIV evolved as well, bringing those and whatnot to the to the the testing centers that were built on up with that as well, so that someone positive could could then be effectively treated to somewhat contain HIV in that particular area. ASCP again, as far as a global outreach perspective, in non-infectious diseases, in neoplastic diseases, has played a role in supporting pathologists in developing countries where uh, you might have one or two pathologists per 100,000 or, or more, you know, individuals, but the, the burden of work that those folks have, just getting tissue in and slides cut and eyes on them kind of thing that the use of, of digital technology to scan those slides and share them that there are pathologist volunteers who at the end of their day, you know, log on in and can review some of those cases and provide opinions on the diagnosis of those cases as well. So then again, it's ASCP, it's members, it's volunteers step up to the plate globally, trying to enhance and advance the quality of of care in medicine.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention that, like, we've had to evolve as as an organization, right? We've gone to like, like these lower resource countries, we've helped out with their HIV crisis. Now that I don't want to say the HIV crisis is over by any means, but now that we've got a better handle on that, and in the laboratories in those areas have a better handle on that, now you're having to look at cancer diagnostics, right? It's kind of that thing that we had 100 years ago, right? If you don't know how to diagnose something, how
2: do you treat it? That sort of thing. Absolutely. It's just enhancing those, the ability to diagnose through laboratory and scientific methods. So it's not just physical diagnosis of itchy red bump disease, but what is behind that in a sense and defining the etiology. And etiologies continue to evolve. You know, COVID is just a marvelous example that you know the beasties want to survive every bit as much as what we do as well. So they continue to evolve and adapt. And so we will have to continue to evolve and adapt. And the ability to uh, identify, you know, agents of disease as they change will continue to put pressure on laboratory testing to develop those tests to detect. I mean, again, COVID's a wonderful example When with what we know about genetics and sequencing and all like that, which did not exist, you know, even as much as widely as, as 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, having that ability to, to take coronavirus and break it down and what is the molecular structure of you know, its spike protein and the pharmaceutical agency being able to develop a, a particular mimicking that to stimulate the immune system through mRNA vaccines so that your own body's immune system develops the immunity and the antibody levels so that if that spike protein appears in a COVID virus, it's immediately attached to by your own immune system and blunts the ability of the, the virus to take on over. So that's why you've seen the dramatic drop, in I think in serious COVID cases. Was before that there there are fewer people in the hospital. It's still there. The variants are still trying to adapt this way, but vaccination has been a, a, a tremendous impact on reducing the mortality from folks who get exposed to COVID.
0: Well, I and I know that we've we've mentioned it. No, I'll just mention it again that I do think that that COVID is a really good illustration of the importance of laboratory medicine and pathology, right? Because COVID isn't just an immunology concern. It's not just a virology concern. You've got issues for transfusion medicine. You've got issues for hematology. We see the effects in, obviously, microbiology and chemistry, analytes. It's really, it takes a team to really kind of understand what's going on in a patient.
2: Absolutely. You can't do epidemiology. You can't do case tracking without testing. And laboratory medicine, We're sort of like the the silent service. I mean, we're not out front. You know, people know what a pediatrician does and a surgeon kind of thing. But, you know, laboratories are sort of, you know, in the background kind of thing. And I think to a great extent, certainly by the public and by our clinician colleagues and whatnot, we're sometimes taken for granted that we're always going to be there. But yet, medicine cannot be practiced today without laboratory medicine and clinical medicine is totally dependent upon that. And I, I, I think we talked about standardization and the, the excellent job that laboratorians have done to establish their standards to assure the quality with quality control, documentation of education, external proficiency testing, all those things that happen inside the lab that the outside world is totally unfamiliar with whatsoever. One of the concerns I do have is the proliferation of point of care testing, because I think Clinicians who are taking care of patients have gotten used to the fact that they get a number, they can believe it because of the fact of all of what goes internally in a laboratory, following those standards, all those principles that the ASCP initially set on up so, so many years ago. And so when they get a number out of a little black box, you know, they assume it's got it that, that result has gone through the same stringency as what happens in the main lab. And of course, it's apples and pomegranates. The, the, the methodology is completely different, the chemistry is completely different. I mean, I make the point even if something as simple as a, a urinalysis using a reagent strip. If the person who dips the stick in the urine has not been tested for colorblindness, every strip they run will be negative. Yeah. And it's fundamental things like that that I've been passionate about. I mean, uh,
0: I can hear it my, in your voice. Yeah. And absolutely. My, my,
2: my role at, at the LG School of Medicine has been to, to try and introduce medical students These kinds of fundamental things and whatnot. So they go forth, you know, principles of sensitivity and specificity would define the characteristics of a test. That just because a test is negative, if it's got poor specificity, that does not mean that the patient is not sick. Yeah, so it's even understanding those kinds of things, which even a little bit more abstract to a lot of folks as well. And you you develop those statistics, you develop those characteristics by evaluating the technology of how you do the test use of against who truly has a disease and who doesn't have the disease and how you how phys- clinicians interpret those results or depend upon them having an understanding, at least some fundamental understanding of how testing is done. And that's not aggressively taught in medical schools around. So, laboratorians, those certified med techs, undersell themselves, they're, they're, a great body of knowledge and wisdom and understanding that there's the opportunity for laboratorians to get engaged in whatever clinical setting they're in, you know, to be a little bit more, you know, something, an extroverted clinical laboratory scientist is something of an enigma because even pathologists, you know, you sort of did not go into a patient facing sort of specialty this way. For folks to understand the role we have, the critical role we have is we do need to have people to get on out to go go in their you know, their neighborhoods, in their friends, in their own institution, have lab fairs, explain to people what you do, kind of thing that way. To so that we can create what the image of a laboratory is, and and emphasize you know the the critical, the essential role that laboratory medicine plays in modern medicine because you could not do medicine medicine without lab testing.
0: Absolutely. I know that ASCP has got a few programs just like that, right? Where we go out and where we have volunteers go out in high schools and talk about the profession and, and visit job fairs and, and stuff. I don't think it's a huge, huge volunteer organization, but I, I know that we're always looking for volunteers. So if there's any listeners out there that want to help us do that, shoot us an email at a, I believe it's a podcast, at ascp.org, Fred. I want to kind of wrap up the podcast with one last question, and I want you to kind of like pull out your crystal ball and dust it off, and think about the the future of the laboratory professions and pathology, as well as the future ASCP's place in the future of the profession.
2: Where are we going from here? Well, I think it's it's important not to move away from those core values of back to being you know a, a, a patient centered focus. And the essential focus on education, standardization, and and maintaining that. And again, because the the technology changes and new diseases keep coming up or not, there will always be the need for the spread of new knowledge and and the, and the, the spread of what the standard of laboratory testing should be. Because, you know, hey, if we were still doing lab tests the way we did them back in 1922, we are definitely dinosaurs and in the dust kind of thing. So, as, lo- as long as people continue to get sick, and which they will do, I mean, I think there- there's definitely the role this way. There is so much opportunity. I mean, I, I think, people, you know, because one, there are no role models. So, folks to pursue a career in laboratory medicine is just a lack of understanding of the critical importance that, that laboratorians do play. So, as far as the future goes, I, I think that Those of us who are in the profession now have an obligation from succession planning if we want people to follow behind us, because if we don't do it, who knows who's going to do it? And in that sort of point of view, who knows how people, if they're not us, how are they going to understand this way as well? And I think we've seen some of that with COVID with a lot of false positives, false negatives, people getting treated that didn't need to get treated and people not getting treated who should have been treated because of the fact that the testing's been all over the place. I mean, all, you know, however many, you know, point of care, take home kinds of kinds of testing people got, and everybody thinks it's black and white, you know, it's a positive or it's not a positive and you got it, you don't got it this way. But laboratories understand, Gano's principle of sensitivity, specificity, that a negative is not always negative.
0: Yeah, you got to test at the right time for sure. So yeah, the the, the crystal ball, I I think
2: is clear. I, I think that there's, there's opportunity here. I think, Med- the, the place for medical technology, laboratory professionals can be secure, but I think we need to uh, promote more our professionalism so that we're not assumed or looked upon as a commodity, just some robotic sort of person punching buttons on a machine that does everything because a clinical laboratory scientist is a technologist, a person who understands the science, who knows what's going on, who when something doesn't look right, almost intuitively can say, wait a minute, before I hit the button to send these results, we need to do some val- validation and verification. And using those principles like WestGuard rules, that'll send everybody to the dictionary to find out what those are.
0: Um, quality, con-
2: <laughs> quality control principles and whatnot this, this way, that is, trends and shifts occur this way that you you take action. Rather than just assume that if the light comes on and a number displays, that must be what the result is.
0: Fred, I would just, just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk about us today. David's been doing a lot of work on the historical timeline of the organization. And if any listeners are going to be at the annual meeting in Chicago in September, be on the lookout for that. We're going to have this really awesome display, hopefully, I think, in the exhibit hall where David's work's going to be kind of highlighted. And it's so great. And thank you, Fred, for taking the time to talk about some of those points with us. This has been really illuminating.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity of, of allowing me to participate in this. You know, I, I actually, if people want to contact me, they can contact me through the ASCP. I still actually have an ASCP email. <laughs> Rodriguez at ASCP.org. I got to admit, I don't check it quite every day kind of thing this way. But if you do get any feedback and, and you know, Kelly, you want to pass things when I back through me or whatnot, I'll be happy to do my best and whatnot to answer any inquiries that we got this way. And again, thank you for allowing me to participate. Absolutely. Will do.
0: And I want to take this opportunity to remind our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And once again, don't forget, you can get CME and CMLE credit for listening to this podcast by going to the ASCP store at ASCP.org.